Because and Effect, the podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation, where we talk to people about the causes they care about and the effect that it has on their lives. My name is Nolan Bicknell. Today's episode is our season finale, and uh, I've wanted to sit down for a conversation with our next guest since the second I heard him speak. If you've never heard Mr. Kevin Lamoureux speak before, uh, you're in for a treat. Kevin is an award-winning scholar, professor, he's a public speaker, he's an advocate, and so, so much more. You know, the best I can do in this situation is to try and share as much love as I can. Hey, let's, there are Indigenous children that are alive today. Let's make sure that we're doubling down on love for them. Let's make sure that they're getting all the love that the kids that came before them didn't get. Let's, let's do that. As Cindy Blackstock, another amazing Indigenous woman, <laughs> once more leading the, the, the charge for change, as she has said so eloquently, uh, let this be the last generation of, of kids that have to heal from their childhood. I sat down with Kevin Lamaroon to talk about his work within the education system here in Manitoba, how not to squander the gift of reconciliation from Indigenous peoples, and how we can heal as a nation once we reconcile with the truth of our history. Thank you for listening to the Because and Effect podcast. My name is Nolan Bicknell, and I'm now joined by a very special guest. We have Kevin Lamaru. He's the Associate Vice President of Indigenous Affairs at the U of W, and he's an award-winning scholar, public speaker, and just all-around great guy. Kevin, thank you for being on the podcast. Oh, it's it's my sincere pleasure. Thank you, Nolan, for your patience in putting this together. <laughs> no problem. I mean, like I said before we started recording, you have been on my list of people that I've wanted to talk to since day one of starting this podcast. Uh, I've heard you speak maybe three times three times plus watched videos you know your uh, ted talk on youtube so i'm familiar with your your messaging and everything and that's why i wanted to share it with the world because every time i've heard you speak i've been you know hit right right in the heart and and uh you just have a such an eloquent way of putting things so let's before we get into sort of you know what you're an expert in let's just talk about how you've been doing for the last two years or however long this pandemic's been going. How has your work with the university been going? How has it changed? What, what's been the, you know, how have you been doing for the last uh, year and a half? Yeah, you know, uh, it's been so long since we chatted, Nolan. I haven't had a chance to update you that I'm no longer working in administration at the U of W. I'm back to faculty. Okay. I'm in the faculty of education. I, I work with pre-service teachers again, which is where my heart has always been. I'm happy to uh, be back home. I love the experience of, uh, of you know, working uh, from the other side of, of uh, the university experience. Very grateful for the university community trusting me in that role. I think it was a huge success, but happy to be back home in education with teachers. So how's it been? How's everybody doing? Like I've, everyone I've talked to when it comes to education, it kind of it it runs the gamut of experiences from people are struggling to people are thriving because now they don't have to put on pants when they go to class. So I mean, I'm just curious what's what's your experience been? What what do you what's the general sense of how people are doing out there in the world of education? You know, I, uh, I I'm getting old, and and for the two or three viewers that you have, I mean, first off, if you're watching this on YouTube, you can tell right away I have a I have a face made for radio. That's the first thing. The second thing is I'm clearly getting very old. I'm I'm aging, and in my old age, Nolan, I uh, I'm losing patience with the bureaucracy of education. Anything that gets away gets in the way of getting back to basics. And when I say getting back to basics, I sure as heck ain't talking about reading, writing, and arithmetic. I'm talking about the sacred responsibility that we all have as human beings to love and care for children even if they're not our own and 
if we bring it back to basics, I think that teachers have proven time and time and time again, even through the most difficult circumstances, that what attracted to them to this profession was the desire to care for kids. It happens that because of this very, very difficult time that we have been surviving, um, the kids have needed a lot of love. Some kids even more so than, than usual. Um, and I have so much gratitude in my heart for people that are working on the front lines of things. Hey, it's one thing to be at a university and blathering on and, and pretending to be wise, <laughs> as I do. It's another thing to be working in the trenches um, and carrying that, that sacred responsibility day in, day out. Man, teachers are amazing. Um, you know, and here in Manitoba, it's too bad because we've seen a lot of disrespect coming from you know, government level coming from the uh, decision making tables towards teachers, we've seen a lot of disrespect for for what they do. Uh, man, I, I love teachers. I am so proud of our teachers here in Manitoba. I just came from the West Coast, as you know, you were out on vacation there. And um, I learned that uh, as I was traveling and visiting people whose lands Vancouver and much of British Columbia is built upon, in their tradition, they raise hands in gratitude, and uh, and I do that for for our teachers here in Manitoba. Man, we've got the best. Absolutely. When I was on on Vancouver Island, there I learned that there's a uh, 100% outdoor, um, essentially kindergarten level class where every single day, no matter what the situation is, they go out in the forest, they connect with the land. And they just learn when, even if it's raining sideways, they still take these kids out. They teach them how to sort of survive at a very young age. And, you know, they get outside and learn and they get in the mud and get in the grass and get in the, uh, in the forest and learn about that stuff. What do you think is missing from Manitoba's, um, you know, just general how we approach education that you wish would be implemented in some way? Not necessarily what I, the example I just used, but just what do you think is missing for, for today's kids? Yeah, you know, I, one of the things that I, I, uh, I have the good fortune in my career of being able to work with teachers across the country. And what a gift that is. That's, that's uh, wow, I, I can only stand back in awe at the opportunities I've been given to work with teachers and schools and, and people doing this work from coast to coast to coast. And one of the things that I respect about British Columbia is that they've invested heavily into social and emotional well-being, right? I think that Manitoba schools are very, very good, amongst the best in the world, in fact, at speaking from the head to the head. We can do that. And we're exceptionally good at that if students are in a place where they're ready, where they are ready for that kind of learning. I think that Bree C has recognized that not all kids come to school ready to, to engage uh, at that intellectual level, mostly because basic needs haven't been met through no fault of their own. Uh, but they also recognize that the intellect doesn't reflect the entire person and that the intellect doesn't represent uh, investing in the intellect doesn't ensure our economic vibrancy in the future. That being able to measure our academic, uh, you know, educational accomplishments through standardized tests doesn't guarantee a healthy economy. It doesn't guarantee that we're going to have um, citizens say, for example, well enough inside of their hearts and minds to not be lured by the anti-vaxxers. You know, that's a symptom of people who, you know, I, I think have been wounded deeply. I think that you can only, you know, refuse to receive a vaccine at this point because of a deep wound. And um, 
BC has recognized that that social emotional learning that cares for people as entire people that front loads lives into people's developmental experience that teaches people that they are part of a whole part of a community that we don't exist in isolation. I think that's going to be a necessary next step in evolution in, in Manitoba that uh, that we can be courageous enough to take that plunge and, and stand in defiance from those who want to measure educational performance by PISA scores. <laughs> As if our Manitoba economy uh, can be determined by two or three percentage points this way or that way on these silly, silly measures that in fact teaching sciences, pedagogical sciences today represent so much more than just performing on standardized tests. Uh, that emotional, social, emotional well-being. And for me, man, that example you gave, Nolan, I, I don't know how we could ever be our best selves. I don't know how we could ever be truly human without that connection to the living world. Yeah, very well said. I think I just pinpointed why I love hearing you speak so much. It's it's how you frame divisiveness. And, you know, talking about the vaccine situation, I'm, I'm living in Bloom North, Manitoba right now. So right outside of Steinbeck, my, my partner is a, a midwife. So she's dealing with a lot of um, misinformation that people have about edge, about uh, medical situations and everything like that. So I kind of understand where you're coming from. But the way you put it uh, as people are just wounded and to, appro to approach it not with, you know, an aggressive stance you you've never been aggressive in anything you've you, i've heard you say right and and just approaching that that uh that disconnect as with empathy as opposed to with anger that is so much of what social media is right now um how how did you come to this conclusion that um, vax denial and science denial is comes from a place of being wounded and how have you been dealing with with hearing so much of this conversation happening in in manitoba and and how so many people seem to be unwilling to sort of play their fair part in protecting both our kids and and our elderly and and everyone here in manitoba like how how have you been dealing with that just just this this divisiveness that's been going on with 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 our province I, well you you're very generous in the way that you describe me i appreciate that uh, I think those closest to me would know that it's a struggle for me. You know, I, I started off this pandemic extremely angry about, you know, at people who wouldn't follow the direction that we were given on how to protect one another. I was very angry. That was uh, a very difficult time for me. I was afraid for you. I was afraid for me. I was afraid for our kids and, and people that weren't willing to follow direction were very frustrating to me. All right. And it's actually, you know, as with most good things, it uh, as with many good things, uh, any insights that I've 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 gotten, you know, come from having made a lot of mistakes, and also the teaching of elders. You know, we have a lot of indigenous knowledge keepers, elders, and elderly people in indigenous communities who are afraid of the vaccine. Okay? And as frustrating as it may be for me, simply because I love them and I want them to be safe, I have to respect that this isn't Facebook science that's causing them to be afraid. This isn't the, the voice of a couple of, you know, big personalities with an agenda. These are people who have lived a life of needing to mistrust the government to mm -hmm. survive. You know, we, it wasn't too long ago that we found out about Ian Mosby's um, research studies and archives that led us to finally discover that they were doing nutritional experiments on, on children in residential schools we have people in our communities that survive that. 
and now being told that they have to take a vaccine coming from the government, I absolutely empathize with the fear. I can't be angry at that. And, and so, you know, we saw this incredible campaign here in, in, in Winnipeg with young people, young Indigenous people in particular, who were very visible in, in receiving their vaccines. And the messaging around that was protect your community, you know, be, be a warrior, protect your community. Um, you know, I don't think that we heal that mistrust or um, ensure people's safety when they're feeling unsafe in the hands of the Canadian government by being angry, by being judgmental. In fact, I'm humbled. I, I was humiliated at the way I behaved because I failed to see that. Mm -hmm. And so now as I step outside of Indigenous communities and I, I, I look at the rest of the world and people who have been manipulated, people that are quick to absorb misinformation, okay? it's not because they're bad people. It's not because I'm somehow better than them. It's because perhaps they haven't been able to benefit from some of the love and some of the opportunities and, and some of the messages around safety that I've received. I know we don't change hearts and minds by screaming at people. We, we change hearts and minds by loving one another. I'm trying to, yeah, I'm trying to have those conversations with my friends and family because it seems as though the, 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 the quick response when someone's not wearing a mask in the store or, or whatever the case may be is just like, you know, screw that guy, you know, and, and, and I, 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 I have this conversation with my partner a lot. I'm like, we have to, you can't, that's not going to make it better. You have to understand where they're coming from and try to say like, Hey, well, why are they feeling that way? Right? Like, obviously they're coming from a certain place of just wanting to protect themselves and they don't have, you know, so I, I've always loved your approach of, of empathy and love can conquer and and anger and obviously you feel anger and so so does everyone but i mean how long did it take you to kind of not give into the ang that that initial anger first and try to get to a place of empathy and love and acceptance and and try to find some common understanding where obviously you know, you weren't always like this. So did it take a long time? Have you, are you still working on it? What's that process been like? Yeah, yeah. I wrestle with my humanity all the time. I, I wrestle with being human. I wrestle with not always knowing the answers. I wrestle with being in <laughs> grocery stores and seeing people that refuse to follow the railroads in the, in the aisles, for example. You know, a couple of lessons I've learned along the way, though, because I've, I intentionally built a career putting myself in front of racism and discrimination and, and walking that path. I think I've started to learn a couple of lessons. One is this, when you see somebody not wearing a mask in a public space, they went into that space, not knowing that they're not wearing a mask, looking for a fight. That's mm -hmm. not the right time to educate them. They're, they're loaded for bear. They're, they're looking for a confrontation. You're not going to change any hearts and minds, no matter how loving you are. <laughs> That's yeah. not the moment. Same thing with with and you know in the middle of of dealing with racism, you know, when when people go looking for a conflict, not always the best time to engage in uh, in um, the exercise of what I refer to as deconstructing other that 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 exercise where we recognize each other's shared humanity and, and try to share each other's story. Right, mm -hmm. the whole idea of truth and reconciliation. Truth isn't just not telling lies. Truth is me having the right to share my story with you and knowing that I'm going to be heard, trusting that I'm going to be heard and that you can share your story with me and trust that you are being heard. Right. That's, that's part of that deconstructing otherness. We, we hear each other's story. We share in each other's humanity. Right. 
there are moments outside of those high conflict situations where we can begin to to share love and compassion and kindness yeah but there's two things that go with that right we we have to be one is about being in a place of our own healing journey sometimes i'm not able to do that work right sometimes when i'm you know i see conversations it's like conversations with race and ethnicity or reconciliation you know i do this as a living sometimes in my personal life people want to talk about indigenous stuff i i don't want to and sometimes i i i need to just be yeah. right and not be wearing my identity all the time not be you know needing to heal people around me sometimes i just need to retreat right and that's okay you know so it requires us to be in a place in our own healing journey and and to forgive ourselves sometimes we're not able to do that work but then there's other times where you know taking the example of our elders all right you take a look at the example given to us by survivors of residential schools Here's a group of people that have every reason in the world to never engage in a relationship with Canada again. Mm -hmm. Every reason in the world to reject Canada forever. And yet they gave us reconciliation. If they can invest into that kind of generosity, if they can give of themselves to share their stories as they did, these incredible stories that came with so much pain, if they can be so generous and so kind as to offer us reconciliation, then I think I can be kind to people sometimes when I'm in a space where my healing journey will allow it uh, and maybe create space for them to know that they're safe enough to consider the possibility that they might have been wrong. Okay? And what an incredible quality of character to be able to acknowledge, hey, I was wrong. You know, I, I've been acting this way about not wearing a mask and I was wrong. You know, if somebody's able to come to that point, I have nothing but respect in my heart for them. Probably a better quality of character than I am most times. Um, but I can't expect them to make that kind of leap if I'm, if I'm yelling at them, if I'm yeah. judging them, if I'm making, trying to make them feel stupid for not agreeing with me, right? Because they, you know, uh, have followed a different path in coming to understand or perceive the world. So I guess, you know, I, I, two things about that one, I, I, I'm not always there, it requires us to, to be in a particular place in our healing journey, and, and we have to be gentle with ourselves about that. But, you know, whenever I do need that inspiration, I take it from survivors. And, you know, just looking at my daughter and wanting the best world for her, you know, yelling at somebody may make me feel better. But that hatred's going to be waiting there for her if I if I don't do the work this generation. Very well said, as always. Yeah. How's your daughter doing with the whole, you know, school from home and not seeing friends and stuff? Is it tough or is she handling things? What's the situation? Yeah, it's it's tough for all kids. You know, kids, uh, kids are, are, are meant to be with other kids. Kids are meant to fall down outside and scrape their knee. They're meant to get in fights with each other and learn lessons from that. They're meant to have fun sometimes where they don't need to think about the status of the world and our safety at all times. What an incredible weight to put upon kids. <sighs> luckily, and I have full faith in this, uh, luckily, you know, kids are incredibly resilient, you know, incredibly capable of facing the ups and downs created by the adult world <laughs> and, and navigating that with that incredibly beautiful spirit of childhood. Um, you know, and I, I goes back to this idea of schools. Schools are a very unnatural kind of creation. You know, the mm -hmm. idea of throwing a bunch of people into a concrete building and calling it a community is crazy from one perspective. 
but one thing that I think uh, holds true is that, um, you know, any child that can walk in a school and know that there are adults there that love them, you know, as uh, Yuri Broffenberner has said, are unconditionally crazy about them. You know, I think that we're going to see very, very quickly uh, kids beginning to adapt and re-engage with the world, you know. I think we're going to find a lot of kids that are germaphobic and we're going to find a lot mm -hmm. of kids that are, you know, uh, a little bit more trepidatious in relationship building and there's going to be some long-term consequences to this. I think that there's going to be a lot of kids that have to wear that, that uh, the consequences of this fracture in our society, that polarization of opinions. But um, our hope as a species has always been in our children and um, man, it's such a joy to be able to be attached to schools that are, are, are doing this good work across, across Winnipeg. It's that sense of belonging that I don't think, at least when I was in school, there was no conversation about community and belonging. It was just sort of a, a secondary happenstance of being on a team, you know, on a hockey team or volleyball team or whatever. How important is that sense of belonging, not just to kids, but to people in general. And within the context of the pandemic, when sort of our ability to, to meet and congregate and, and, have, and, and share community was taken away from us, and that sense of belonging was taken away from us, I, I feel like the mental health pandemic is also taking off, not just from the viral pandemic. So like, how important is that sense of belonging and community for people to be well and, and stay well? There's a reason why uh, isolation, you know, solitary confinement in prisons is considered cruel and unusual under Canadian law. It's because it's a type of torture to lock human beings away from each other. We needed to do this to survive as a species, to not cripple our, our you know, our ICUs and our healthcare system. Absolutely necessary, but we've been wounded, I think, as a, as a species by this. One of the fundamental needs is to love and be loved. And uh, man, there's a lot of people that have had to live without that. There's a lot of people that have been trapped in situations, domestic situations, you know, families that have experienced oppression and social isolation and poverty that have had to be in, in very, very sometimes unsafe, high stress, high conflict situations for a long period of time. Man, oh man, you know, uh, my heart breaks for people. Yeah. There's so many people that have been isolated from the living world, from Madea Ake, kind-hearted Mother Earth, right? Because of, you know, guidelines, you know, weren't able to, downtown Winnipeg, weren't able to get outside and, and, and walk around and feel safe. This is, this is huge. I think more than anything, uh, this is a time where we need kindness for each other, not that anger, right? This is a, a time where we need to be gentle with each other as much as we can when we go out through our masks, you know, when we only can see this much, um, <laughs> to offer those smiles and those kind words and those thank yous and, uh, you know, to, to be a little bit gentle with each other, it, it, it matters. You may be the, the, the one person in somebody's day that's able to, uh, you know, extend a little bit of kindness and uh, that can go a long way in, in helping people. But the other thing is, is I hope that this allows us to truly authentically talk about mental health a lot more. I know that we have, you know, Let's Talk Mental Health Day and, and so on and so forth. There's been many, many great campaigns, but it's still very, very difficult, I've noticed, for a lot of people to talk about their mental health. You know, I suffer from depression clinically for a long period of time. 
you know, my depression is something that has been life-threatening at times. And it, it has caused me a lot of embarrassment at times because my depression has caused me to miss dates in my professional, you know, career. It's caused me to miss due dates. It's, it's caused me a lot of trouble. And I used to be so ashamed of talking about that. Um, but I don't, I, I, I can't allow myself to fall into that trap of, of, asking from other people what I'm not willing to do myself. And so if anyone is wrestling with depression or anxiety or feels unwell inside themselves, holy smokes, you're not alone. And there's a very good reason for that. And, you know, there's, there's a community of people who, you know, uh, are suffering with you, even though you don't realize that yet. And, and I so hope that you can find some way to connect with that. The Anxiety Disorder Association of Manitoba, for example, is uh, is a such a great resource to connect. Maybe through your workplace, um, you know, with with people that can help you. Who, if not for yourself, take that leap and reach out because maybe your act of courage will inspire somebody else down the road. You know. Um, beautifully said yeah i completely agree and i think now that people everyone else is going through the isolation too it's kind of, i think it i i hope that it's easier for people to say like oh that okay i i kind of get it now whereas before people you know it's maybe this esoteric thing mental health you know depression and now it's like oh okay i don't want to get out of bed today i see i kind of i i understand a little bit more and i can empathize a little bit more and that's one thing I think I hope that the pandemic sort of it's it's going to be residual effects of the pandemic of people sort of having that empathy and understanding of like, oh, isolation is actually torture and, and all that. What's what's something from the pandemic that you hope <laughs> this is a weird question, but what's something that you hope stays sticks around, whether it's, you know, social or emotional or or anything, you know, when it comes to how there's going to be a shift sort of pre pandemic and post pandemic? How do you how do you hope what do you hope we take from this pandemic moving forward as a as a culture and as a society? I think that with the pandemic um one of the things that uh that struck me that took me by surprise one of the lessons i learned very early on because i teach at a university you know i i I have students i have to engage with i realized as we were connecting to zoom for the first time if we can take ourselves back to those dates when it was still new when we were still figuring out the interface when we were getting used to seeing ourselves on screen all of those weird very strange things it dawned on me that you know for example nolan i i see bits of you behind you i'm kind mm-hmm. of in your space we're not at the winnipeg foundation offices you're in my basement and i'm in in your space um that's a very intimate thing and i think as we had these very intimate face-to-face conversations which completely took me by surprise that that was possible mm. digitally i think that we saw people listening to each other and and maybe allowing for people to take time when they needed it you know to maybe um be unwell to maybe need a little bit of help to maybe need a little bit of flexibility people that you know were able to start working from home some of them maybe found a huge amount of, of relief in that being not having to sometimes um, take that extra step of, of going out and facing a world that can be so anxiety inducing, you know, uh, uh, to be at work and be productive and still be a team member without needing to, to endure. That's a, that's a kindness I hope doesn't go away. That's a sensibility and flexibility that I hope doesn't give, doesn't go away. You know, I, I, I think that um, 
we are at our best as a species when we care for one another and we're at our worst when we're fractured and if you need an example of what a fractured society in the modern world could look like what does it look like to see one of the most powerful nations on earth torn apart at the seams all we need to do is look south of the border mm -hmm. and if we think that that couldn't happen here in canada i would beg you to maybe reconsider that possibility um <laughs> i think the inoculation against that sort of of failure to thrive as a society is kindness yeah and it's you can see it seeping in a little bit with some of the tactics in the upcoming election and i don't want to get political with you necessarily um what Maybe I'll just. You know, ask. I'm not Kevin Lamry, the politician, right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I am aware. Uh, thankfully, I am aware. <laughs> yeah. uh, maybe I'll just ask what what question would you would you implore our journalists? What, what topics do you wish were being focused on politically that maybe aren't as much, or, or what questions do you wish journalists would ask of our leaders that maybe haven't been asked, or you know, what what conversation do you wish was having on a national level that maybe isn't, or or what conversations are you happy to see that are happening during this cycle that that are that are going on? What's your what's your general take with the whole thing? You know, there's one thing that's been bugging me. And uh, I, I can't shake it. Uh, I, I just can't let it go. It, it bugs me. It actually keeps me awake at night. I think about it a lot, uh, more than maybe I should. But Nolan, it is bananas, B-A-N-A-N-A-S. It is crazy that there are communities in Canada that don't have clean drinking water. I don't, I, I can't understand it, man. I, it makes no sense. We're one of the wealthiest, most powerful, most privileged nations on earth. And there are people within driving distance of you and I right now that don't have clean drinking water. If you look at that objectively, if you just look at untangle ourselves, I know that's a ridiculous thought, but if we could untangle ourselves and look objectively at what Canada is and see that there are people without clean drinking water, I, I have to believe that the only conclusion we would land on is horror bewilderment just absolute it's 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 insane it's mm -hmm. insane and i think if we were the society that um, demanded that every citizen have clean drinking water if our political process was spinning around this topic of how do we ensure right now that we are doing whatever we need to as quickly as possible get clean drinking water to every community that mindset that goes into that, the, the mindset that would allow that conversation to take place, the, the, the state of mind, the, the heart, honesty that would allow for that kind of motivation. There's so many spinoffs that would come from that in terms of justice, in terms of what our future might look like in Canada, what it means to be Canadian. There's so much tied up in that fact that there are communities that don't have clean drinking water, but could, if, if we could return to that, I, I think that we could accomplish a lot in a short period of time. We are capable of greatness. Hey, I mean, we inherited so much wreckage from the past as a society and look at what we've accomplished in reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Look at what we've done. There are things going on that I never thought would happen in my lifetime. And yet they're happening. And I don't want to give the impression. I don't want to give the impression that everything is good. Right. I know for a fact that I have many Indigenous brothers and sisters who reject the concept of reconciliation, mm -hmm. that don't believe that reconciliation is possible, that reconciliation is dead. And I absolutely understand that. 
right? We have to understand we were given the calls to action before uh, Colton Bushy's murderer was found not guilty. This was before Tina Fontaine, a 14-year-old child who was last seen behind the University of Winnipeg before her murderer went free. This is before those fisheries on the East Coast were set on fire, where Indigenous fishermen were trying to make a living. This is before protesters standing up against fracking and the poisoning of water and Elsie Book took First Nation and New Brunswick had machine guns pointed at them. This was before the same thing happened at Wet'suwet'en in British Columbia. This is before Joyce Echequan, that woman in Quebec, died in a hospital listening to nurses say racist things about her. Man, this was before 215 graves unmarked graves of children were fine i get that and yet i think it's okay to also acknowledge that more has happened than i ever saw happen in my life we're capable of good we're capable there's so much hurt out there but we are capable of good we are capable of advancing reconciliation um i believe in that as you should and as we all should for sure my, i i have this conversation a lot with people about systems and how you hear this you hear the term the system's broken the system's broken but systems are either they either work or they don't like a, a system is designed exactly how it the outcomes of a system are not you know antithetical to what the system was designed to do so how do we as a nation dismantle systems of oppression who are literally built to hold down a certain group and benefit another group like how can we even exist while those systems exist when the systems themselves aren't broken they're working as intended i have this debate with my friends all the time it's like well do we work from within you know working from the winnipeg foundation do we work from within the system and try to try to stop the gaps in that way do we try to dismantle the system first and rebuild something like where do you stand on the systemic oppression rather than just the, you know, personal and, and social oppression that happens, but the actual systems in place that we need to address that haven't been, you know, the Indian act is a great example of that. Like what, where do you stand on how to approach systemics um, problems and how we should address them? Such a good question, right? A couple of things to, to, to point out about what you said so eloquently there is that uh, there is no system outside of people, right? Mm -hmm. if, if the people aren't part of that system, enforcing that system, it's not an entity that continues to exist. It's only brought to life through the actions and words and commitments of people, right? It doesn't feel that way for people inside. It feels like a living entity that is bigger than us. But I, I think it's maybe healthy, maybe even empowering to remember that if we just stepped outside of that system somehow, that it wouldn't continue to exist, right? Mm -hmm. There would be no education system if people weren't enforcing the policies of an education system, right? Now that's kind of a, a, a simplistic view of it. And I don't mean to oversimplify the issue. I just mean to remember that we as, as people have a lot of power and we have a lot of capacity to create change. We're not powerless is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. The second thing I would say about that is that um, when we've been hearing a lot of voices come from beginning in the United States and continuing through Canada, particularly around voices calling for recognition that Black Lives Matter about systemic racism. There's an, been an invitation extended to us with urgency to recognize that um, systemic racism exists. And it's a difficult concept to understand. It really is. 
it would be easy to believe that if I'm not using racial slurs and I'm not hearing racist jokes around me, that there is no racism. It's another step to recognize that I was born into a system that um, is designed to marginalize certain voices and experiences. That's designed to stand in the way of the flourishing of certain people. And you gave the example of this. In Canada, systemic racism is legislated through the Indian Act, right? And so that system has created a legacy. It means that we've created a lot of, we've inherited a lot of wreckage, right? If we were to simply eliminate the, the Indian Act right now, poof, gone, if it were to disappear, there, it's created such a system, uh, a legacy of dependency that there are communities that would starve to death not because they're incapable of looking after themselves, not because they're lazy, not because they're dumb, but because they've been economically crippled by a system that prevented them from building self-sufficiency, that they were limited by a system that didn't allow their kids to receive a proper education and participate in post-secondary, weren't allowed to open business or operate using resources, weren't even allowed to own the land that they live on for Pete's sakes, the legacy of that, if you just eliminate the Indian Act, the only source of support that exists for many communities, people are going to starve to death. And so the question isn't, do we need to dismantle these things? The question is, what comes next? And in the case of Indigenous people in reconciliation, we're so lucky that we were given the 94 calls to action. We know exactly what we need to do. Mm-hmm. There isn't really any need to debate this anymore, talk about it. It's been given to us. Um, it begins on the foundship, uh, the foundation of the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People. We were promised UNDRIP before the last election. I don't know if you remember that. Mm-hmm. Two of the major par- parties promised that they would give us UNDRIP. One of those major parties was elected. That major party, the first thing that they did was file an appeal um, to fight Indigenous kids in court. Okay? There's uh, a power in our voice if we can demand that our voice be heard. I, 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 we know what we need to do to create change. I asked uh, Winnie Corn Miller when she spoke um, for the foundation because she's been fighting. You know, she's been a warrior on 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 the side of fighting against oppression for thirty years now. And I asked her, "How do you stay optimistic when it's two steps forward, one step back, three steps forward?" four steps back sometimes you know like we're always kind of move we are i would argue we are moving in the right direction history will eventually get us to the place we need to be but how do you personally stay optimistic when we make progress and then it regresses and we make a little bit more progress and then it regresses again like why can't we just keep why can't it be on the up and up why does it have to go back and forth like that and and how do you deal with that uh two things one um uh, indigenous women, uh, which are the source of the—they're the, the heart of indigenous communities. Always, always have been, damn well, always will be. That the voices of indigenous women are being heard, and the messages that are being offered by people like Winnie Corn Miller and others. We're so lucky in Manitoba to have so many people who are on the front lines of of change. Um, too many to name. If I started to try and name them, I'm going to leave somebody out and then I'm going to feel embarrassed. Um, uh, Reminds us, it it reminds me that the best efforts of one of the most powerful nations on earth tried to destroy that. 
the Indian Act tried to destroy Indigenous women. Colonization hates Indigenous women. And yet we have women whose voices are being heard on the front lines of change reminds me that we can't be destroyed. There's going to be Indigenous people, even if Canada fails to survive as a country, which it will if we don't get sustainability under, under uh, you know, if we don't build that into our active lifestyle and consciousness, we will fail to survive. We'll fail to survive as an economy if we can't get reconciliation right. But Indigenous people will continue to exist and it will be Indigenous women at the heart of community raising healthy families. That's one source of my strength and, and hope. The second is youth. Hey, um, Every effort was made to destroy Indigenous language and culture and to ensure that no more First Nations Indigenous children would be born proud of who they are, proud of their ancestors, or even aware of who they are. And look at the voices we've got in our community. Okay? Those voices aren't going anywhere. They're stronger than I ever was when I was a kid. My trauma will only let, ever let me go so far you know, in my life. And that's okay. I've made my peace with that. It's fine because I get to watch now my daughter growing up demanding that her voice be heard, expecting that her voice as an Indigenous person is going to be respected. And if it isn't, watch out, man. Um, Indigenous people are awesome, dude. I'm so lucky. I I really am. All people are awesome. But I, I guess I'm just saying that I, I feel so lucky. I feel so lucky to be a part of a community, even when my own sickness prevented me from doing right by that community for the harm that I've caused in my life, the mistakes that I've made, the things that I've done wrong to still have people that love me and want to see me succeed, man. I am humbled. Eh, it's, yeah. <laughs> my life is structured in a way that I can only feel hope, Nolan. Beautifully said. Thank you for, you know, delving into these topics. I know it's, it's gotta be exhausting that everyone's like, what's your take on it? What, you know, I'm sure the phone was ringing off the hook when everything was going down. And like, so thank you for sharing. Cause I, I know it's not easy to delve into these topics sometimes. So I really appreciate your time. Listen, you know, that uh, I'm going to be honest with you, buddy. It, uh, it sucks that those, uh, that those children were found. It sucks, you know, and it sucks for people because, uh, you know, I, I was reminded, I think we were reminded by Justice Marie Sinclair, but I, I, I happened to be working with some folks in, in Kamloops to Sikumpwek that um, reminded me, I suppose, that, you know, Indigenous people, we all know somebody that's missing, that went missing in our lives. We all do. Um, and I think for many of the families, they knew that their kids were coming home, but when they're missing, there's always that little bit of hope, hey? That maybe someday they'll be maybe they found their way into some other family maybe 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 but when you see 215 unmarked graves and now thousands across the country you know okay, that, that these little children were lost and that sucks and uh you know the best i can do in this situation is to try and share as much love as i can hey let's there are indigenous children that are alive today let's make sure that we're doubling down on love for them Let's make sure that they're getting all the love that the kids that came before them didn't get. Let's let's do that. As Cindy Blackstock, another amazing Indigenous woman, <laughs> once more leading the, the, the charge for change, as she has said so eloquently, uh, let this be the last generation of, of kids that have to heal from their childhood. Beautifully said, for sure. Absolutely. Well, sir, at the end of our time together, 
I like to do a segment with all my guests called Just Because. Okay. Where we talk Let's about do the it. same. It's the same seven questions for everyone, all about the causes you care about and the effect that it has on your life. You okay to go through them? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Question one. What is the very first cause you ever remember caring about? Oh my goodness. The very first cause I ever remember caring about. I remember being a little kid and watching videos about apartheid on, on the television. I remember sneaking into the room and, you know, we only had a couple of stations on the TV back then. Uh, I don't want to be judgmental, but you look much younger than me just because you look so much more vibrant than I feel. I'm of an age where you only got a couple of, of stations on the TV. And I remember watching videos about apartheid and my little brain couldn't understand why people treated each other that way. Mm -hmm. And this, yeah, I think the craziest thing about these conversations and the residential school conversation is this is 30 years ago. This isn't 200 years ago back in, you know, ancient times this is our parents my dad played hockey at a residential school in out of bird tail right like he was like yeah we used to go play there like when this was all going down we kind of had a conversation with the family and he's like yeah i used to play hockey at one of those schools and he you know just having that reckoning and that that conversation and that experience is like this is not ancient canadian history this is not ancient you know south african history as as apartheid was this is happening and just happened and it's kind of mind-boggling when you put it into that perspective but uh, yeah great answer um question two what if sorry if money and politics and logistics were no issue at all you could just snap your fingers and something would happen what's the first thing you would do in sort of in support of your current cause oh man i, I already said it every community would be able to turn on the tap and get clean drinking water yeah. we were promised undrip Nolan, we were promised where's our undrip we got to get that going that would be uh number two yeah <laughs> I feel like the people who are asking, like the journalists asking questions, why is that not the number one thing? Obviously, there's lots of issues, but like, how can you be proud to be Canadian when Cana when Canadians aren't able to? Yeah, anyways, we could get into that for an hour, but yeah, good answer. Uh, question three, what's the biggest misunderstanding or stigma about the cause? The stigma that uh, I, I think is is the one that we have to get all uh, get over first is this belief that somehow reconciliation is about indigenous people <laughs> it's totally not true that's backwards reconciliation is about healing canada reconciliation is a gift that was given to us by survivors so that in following the 94 calls to action we could heal this nation you said it man we can't be the nation that we were meant to be if there are people living under third world conditions we can't be the canada that we would be most proud of when there are people living under conditions that other people flee countries to escape from, this is about helping Canada to reach its full potential. And, you know, this may sound strange, but I'm somebody that loves Canada. I really do. I love Canada. I'm of mixed ancestry. You know, I grew up in the North End, you know, as a, as a half breed, <laughs> which was not a good thing growing up. Now I'm proud of it back then. You know, growing up with uh, Ukrainian and Ojibwe heritage just meant you had to fist fight with everybody. <laughs> but being of mixed ancestry, um, my Ukrainian side of the family exists, survived Holodomor in the Ukrainian Holocaust because of Canada. I stand up with gratitude in my heart to sing the national anthem on behalf of my Ukrainian ancestors. But we're not yet the country we were meant to be, and nor can we when, uh, when we continue to see people go without clean drinking water and so i think that's the biggest stigma is that reconciliation is this act of pity for indigenous people when in fact it's an opportunity for us to be a part of a solution even though we didn't create the problem 
beautifully said as as per usual you're you're a poet you're you're eloquent and you're a scholar uh question four what's a recent victory or that professionally or personally that you're proud of hmm that's a good question oh you know what i've got a good answer for you i was in um I was in British Columbia recently, as, as you know, and I was actually working with the private sector, which is not something I do all the time. And, and I was working with a group of people in the private sector, people who own businesses, people who are CEOs that have a tremendous amount of voice because they have wealth. And it shouldn't be that way, but we have to acknowledge that it is. These are people that have voice in, you know, Chamber of Commerce, people who have friends who are politicians. These are people that have voice. And I had a fellow come up to me who introduced himself by saying, listen, I need you to know that I'm far right and conservative. <laughs> and I said, okay, I'm Kevin. It's nice to, it's nice to meet you. <laughs> and nice. we, we started to have a conversation and what he wanted to tell me is that, um, you know, uh, he believed um, he came to understand, I suppose I, I'm trying to find a way to, to reflect what he said while paraphrasing basically that, you know, this learning journey that I had shared with him had allowed him to see that there was nothing in his conservative far right or even religious beliefs um, that were contrary to the spirit of reconciliation. Mm -hmm. He had spent his whole life thinking it was us and them, thinking that if they would just work the way his family did, if they could just do this, if they could just do that, um, that the problem wouldn't need to exist anymore. And yet he was able to come to a place where he was, able to admit and not admit just reframe just reframe essentially absolutely yeah that he was wrong man i have i have so much re i said that already i have so much respect for somebody like that it's lovely to speak to somebody like yourself that we think alike you and i feel like our hearts are aligned it's another thing when you can do work to help somebody like that achieve their best self i'm so proud of that man i i'm humbled to be a small part of that man's journey I get in a little bit of trouble when I go home because I'm from a small from Russell, Manitoba, and sometimes the conversations can be small town-ish, you know, like there, there's just perspectives that are limited in because you only grew up around certain people or whatever the case may be. I don't want to, you know, shit talk Russell at, at all, but <laughs> the, the conversations that kind of happen and I try to from a lot of your teachings and from a lot of your wisdom, just reframe things like, okay, but have you thought of it this way, you know, and not necessarily say like, this is what you should do, but just like, okay, but have you considered this perspective? And, and people will often come to the conclusion themselves once you just reframe it in the, pro in the proper context. And I think that's, what's kind of missing in the, in the conversation nowadays. It's, I believe this, no, you believe this. Well, you're wrong. Well, you're wrong. And it, that it's just, people aren't even having the same conversation. They're not even starting at the same place, but if you can start from the same place, place and be like hey all we want is love and care for our families and, and communities right okay so here's how we can get there as a community and it i get in trouble for sort of starting the the, the political conversations over thanksgiving dinners but i mean i'm not going to stop so yeah. <laughs> uh question five what is the best what is the best advice you've ever been given it actually came from my grandmother mm -hmm who uh, just popped into my mind when you said that. I wasn't expecting that. My, uh, my cook, Mary, uh, Mary Ranville, who uh, just before she uh, died, who had every reason in the world to hate Canada, um, asked me to make sure that I always loved everybody. I don't know why I was so lucky to be born into a family like that, but uh, 
you know, my, my grandparents, Mary and E.G. Renville, um, even though I wasn't able to, to, you know, my father wasn't part of my life. They were a big part of my life until I was nine and, and beyond. And uh, they ran a boarding house. Um, was I saying this in this podcast? They ran a boarding house here yeah. in Winnipeg uh, in the North End, just off uh, on Inkster Avenue. And they would take in Native folk from up north uh, who needed medical care uh, here wow. in Winnipeg that couldn't get it back home. And so I remember going to their place and, and they were always powwows and cultural events. And, um, you know, there was always fresh fish being prepared in the house and meals being prepared. And there was always people upstairs and downstairs from all over northern Manitoba. And I got to go and sometimes as a little boy, go and sit in their rooms and play with them and uh, and meet all these people. And it became totally normal for uh, people to open their doors, for a family to open their home to other people. You know, when I think about my daughter and everything that I, I might want for her, you know, you know, money, wealth, whatever, all of those dreams, uh, if she could be the kind of person that provided safety for sick people when they needed a safe place to go. I would be so proud of her. And uh, yeah, my, my grandmother wanted me to love everybody. Here's to the grandmas, man. I miss, I miss my grandma Vera every day. And it's uh, yeah, here's to the grandmas. Cheers. Um, question six, what's, what advice, this is kind of talking about your nine-year-old self, but what advice would you give your 10-year-old self if you could go back in time and talk to him right now? I would say, I would, uh, I would remind that little boy that um, I would remind that little boy that um, even though he's scared and hurt and uh, feels very frightened by the world, that he comes from people who continue to survive. And that if you can stay well long enough to um, continue walking down this path that maybe you're going to find peace falling at night, being able to try and give some love to somebody else. Now, you know, that, that trauma, the growing up in the nightmare of being an indigenous half breed in the North end in the 1980s, um, living in that world, so unsafe. I've, uh, I've made many mistakes and I've, I've caused a lot of harm and I've, I've done a lot of things that I should not have done. Um, but and I, I, I don't I don't diminish that. I don't diminish that. But to, again, remind myself that to remind that little boy that uh, you come from people who are survivors and that there's still opportunities to try and make amends by trying to do good in the world. Um, and don't lose sight of that because uh, there's so much beauty out there to be experienced and there's so much good to be witnessed. Um, people that are contributing to reconciliation today to ensuring that no other generations of kids have to go through that. Beautifully said, sir. Um, question seven is usually the hardest one for people, um, but I'll leave it up to you. What do you want to be remembered for? Yeah, my daughter. I just want to be a platform for her to, uh, to shine as best she can. Beautiful. Well, thank you again. I know I, this is obviously some heavy topics. I, I very much appreciate you sharing, you listening to me and, you know, just connecting in this way. I really appreciate it. I had high expectations having heard you speak numerous times and you exceeded all of them by far. I can't believe um, I get to do this for a job. Thank
thank you so much um, for talking to me. Thank you for sharing your story and, and bits and pieces. And thank you for coming to the foundation and talking to us. I know that sparked numerous conversation. Every time you came and sp spoke with us, it always sparked additional conversations for weeks and months in in after you 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 shared with us so um thank you for everything you do thank you for being here today and uh yeah good luck with everything in the future miigwech all the best to you my friend thank you again kevin uh it was such an honor to have such a meaningful conversation with you um like i said on earlier in the podcast days like this I really can't believe I get to do this as a job so thank you for making um, my day <laughs> thank you for being on the show uh, I really can't really find the proper words to explain how grateful I am so I just want to say thank you again and uh, I mentioned Kevin's TEDx talk it's a great one uh, just google Kevin Lamaru TED talk and you can get it on there uh, it was, it's definitely worth your time and uh, yeah thank you for listening today this is one of uh, the most emotional podcasts I've ever done and I want to sincerely thank you for tuning in I know there's so much <laughs> so many options in 2021 for things you could be doing you know watching or listening or reading or you know otherwise enjoying and the fact that you chose to listen to this podcast is uh, incredible so thank you Thank you, thank you, thank you. All music on the show is produced and composed by Trenton Burton. You can hear more of his music by searching Trenton Burton on Spotify. If you'd like to hear more good news from in and around Winnipeg, you can check out Because Radio, our weekly radio program that airs on 93.7 CJNUFM here in Winnipeg. It's hosted by my colleagues, Sonny Promolo and Robert Zirk, and uh, each week they have some great stories about nonprofits here in our city. So every Thursday at noon on 93.7 CJNU, or you can hear old episodes at becauseradio.org. Because in Effect is a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation. You can learn more about the foundation by visiting wpgfdn.org or by following us on social media at wpgfdn on all the platforms. You can follow me at Nolan Bicknell on social media as well. Thank you again for tuning in to the show. We will see you next time. And remember, education is what got us here and education is what will get us out. Bye-bye.